today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some new and rapidly changing developments happening in the war in Ukraine over the last uh, two or three days specifically. Of course, we know that Prime Minister Trudeau was over there last weekend uh, talking to President Zelensky and and, uh, some other uh, public events as well. Uh, But the counteroffensive, the uh, oft-talked-about counteroffensive seems to be rolling on, and there seems to be uh, some early successes uh, with the uh, Ukraine counteroffensive. Joining us to uh, give us an assessment as to what's happening, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Good morning, Bill. And and to you as well. I'm I'm looking at, at some of the reports over the last 24 hours, especially here, Elliot, and, and I guess I'm trying to connect the dots. It looks as if the uh, the Ukrainian forces are starting to, to retake some of the towns and, uh, that had recently been held by uh, Russian forces in situations like that. Uh, and in, in a parallel story here, I'm, talk- I'm, I'm being told about uh, those tanks that the Americans and, and that Canadians and other countries had promised some time ago uh, are apparently around the battlefield now. They, they've, they've trained the soldiers. They've trained them in the uses of this. And as far as I can ascertain here, they seem to be a factor in this counteroffensive. Is that is that your assessment? Yes. Well, it is indeed an evolving story, and sometimes it's is it half full or half empty in terms of assessing, you know, how it's going. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening is um, there is a pre-major counteroffensive underway. I, I was framing this earlier as the Russians are trying to do a counter counteroffensive by uh, blowing up that dam and by massive and repeated, and they're still continuing now, missile and drone attacks all across, all across uh, Ukraine. But Ukraine, in turn, was preparing in advance of this push by opening up a new front inside Russia. And we've got some early reports coming in now that an oil refinery was hit deep inside Russia. And was it done by by missile? Was it done by partisans who are there? We aren't sure. But there's more and more activity opening up a front inside Russia as part of the counteroffensive. And now what seems to be happening is there's probes, Bill, uh, in various places up and down that 1,000-kilometer front line, which has been heavily, heavily fortified by, by the um, Russians, knowing in advance that this counteroffensive is coming. And now we're seeing that I think what's happening is that the uh, Ukrainians are probing in various places, several different places, and they've not committed the bulk of those uh, armaments you just referred to. Some uh, tanks are being used, but the bulk of the armor has not yet been committed. The uh, probes are going on to see uh, and it, it, micro analysts there on the field on the Ukrainian side say, Look, you know what's really happening is the Ukrainian forces are indeed attacking here and attacking there, but it's very strategic because what they're doing is trying to cut off, uh, in the case of Bakhmut, they're trying to surround it, and then around Kherson, around actually Zaporizhia area, there's a bulge in the line there where the Russians are have a forward position, and the villages on two sides of that salient, of that bulge, that's what's being retaken, uh, and that will force now the possibility, of course, that'll be cut, you know, they'll be surrounded and cut off. That's forcing the Russians to pull some of their forces away from other areas to protect those areas, making the areas that's less protected now more vulnerable. So that seems to be the name of the game going on. 
and, and I want to ask about the Russian perspective on this. I mean, you know, to, to hear them talk about everything's going swimmingly. Uh, we do know the story that we saw last week. As a matter of fact, I found out about it a day or two before it broke uh, from uh, a brother-in-law who was actually holidaying in Cuba. And they're they're actually recruiting Cubans uh, to go and fight for the Russian army. And I guess you get citizenship and a couple of other perks if you get in there. And apparently he, he was mentioning there's a lot of uptake on that. And we've subsequently seen stories about that. Uh, so they, they need bodies uh, on the battlefield right now. Uh, and, of course, the other element to that that question is is the Wagner group as well. And I don't know where their heads are on this, Elliot. I mean, you know, they've been asked to swear allegiance to Putin, and they've basically given him the, the bird and said no. Uh, but they're hardly on the other side. They just don't like him, do they? Which is the who and which is the him in this case? Yeah. Well, Putin, obviously, they just don't like the guy. Yeah. Uh, the whole issue of the role of the Wagner group is in itself – were there a closer examination? Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, as you know, claimed to be the only effective fighting force. We took Bakhmut, but now the, the, the you and I have talked about this, I think, the open feuding at the very top of the military and security apparatus of Russia while the war is going on is a notable feature of the war itself. This is news that... <laughs> the head of the Wagner group is openly feuding with the Minister of Defense and with the general who's on overall charge. The counter on that now is that the uh, Ministry of Defense has said that all of these volunteer forces, meaning the mercenary groups, uh, and, and Shoigu himself has one of those, uh, now they're all going to have to volunteer uh, to be rolled into the regular armed forces, no longer to be autonomous. Uh, or technically autonomous, no longer mercenary groups, but part of the... They have signed contracts, and the head of the Wagner group said, Prigozhin said, no, I'm not going to sign that contract. And uh, we know that there was actually fighting between the two groups around um, the regular army and the Wagner group. And he apparently is campaigning quietly all across Russia now as a as a politician. But that doesn't seem to worry Mr. Putin. So there's a lot of stuff happening, intra-elite... Uh, dissension over the conduct of the war. That is a notable feature of what's going on. Because you mentioned that to us in a previous discussion, which I thought was rather fascinating, uh, that, you know, they, they looked at this guy as, okay, he's the head of the mercenaries, but he has political ambitions. I, I, I guess that's really not surprising when you look at it from that perspective, uh, that if Putin is going to go in one way, shape, or form, he'd like to be considered as as the next guy up, wouldn't he? Well, apparently, and uh, that would be very bad news for everybody. There's no reason to think yeah. that the head of this bloody mercenary group would be an improvement over Putin, uh, that he would indeed be uh, calling for a mass mobilization, you know, basically martial law. Right now, remember, the um, <laughs> Mr. Putin was, is desperately trying to, to go back to what you said earlier, desperately trying to find fighters because he does not want to once again call up troops. He called up the 300,000 an additional 300,000 to invade um, Ukraine. And he doesn't want to do that again, because then that brings the war home to the, to the ethnic Russian heartland. And that's the last thing he wants. So he wants to avoid that. I don't think Prigozhin would have any qualms. So we are in a, we are in a situation where what happens on the battlefront is going to be crucial. And what's happening on the battlefront is by no means an open and shut case, and we have to remind ourselves, I think you and I have talked about this, that the, the catchword here, when you look at what's going on, is 
the counteroffensive should not be viewed as an act, you know, a big single strike, but as a process. And it could go on for a very long time as the as the Ukrainians husband their resources and inflict maximum damage on the Russians over a period of time until finally there's a weak spot found where there might be a big push. Uh, very quickly, I want to touch on nuclear weapons, which seems to come up every couple of days now. Uh, Putin's already said that he's going to be sending these things over around Belarus uh, for the, their own defense. Uh, and I know he's. some people are suggesting that this is all a bluff because he's been talking about this since the war began. Uh, and, you know, he wouldn't dare do that because he, he would incur the, the wrath of NATO if he did that. But does he have total control over that stuff, Elliot? Or, I mean, if he sends those down to Belarus, um, are, are there rogue elements there that may just decide, yeah, let's, let's use these things? Well, I think the rogue elements might be there to say, no, uh, we are uh-huh. going to do what you want. Now, there's, it's very clear that those are going to be Russian tactical nuclear weapons. And you and I have discussed this. Tactical is, is a meaningless term. You're nuclear or you're not. Mm-hmm. And you better not use it. But uh, this, they are being moved in. They'll be strictly under Russian command and control. The whole question is, if Mr. Putin said, yes, I do want to use them, would, would those orders be obeyed because there's a lot of reluctance? I think the word has been very clearly delivered to Mr. Putin by the U.S. and I think probably by China as well. Do not use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons. Do not go that route. Uh, I think the U.S. has basically said, bluntly to him, but off the record, where we can't see it, it'll be the end of you personally, Mr. Putin, if you introduce nuclear weapons in any form. But, you know, if Crimea, for example, becomes the target of this counteroffensive that we're talking about, and there's a threat to uh, Crimea actually being lost to Russia, that might indeed uh, be something that Mr. Putin would be tempted to counter with mm-hmm. a nuclear weapon. This counteroffensive and the war and the whole possibility of nukes, this is not a, this is not a, a game that we watch on TV. This is, this is the possibility of World War III and uh, a nuclear war between NATO, which just had massive, <laughs> a massive air display showing you know, the Russians, you know, you can have 250 airplanes flying at you at any moment. All of this is, these are very high stakes. It's, uh, we wish the Ukrainians well, but um, when Trudeau was there, our prime minister was there, he said publicly what Zelensky has also been saying publicly, you are fighting our war for us, and we are going to support you as long as it takes with whatever you need. And I think that is the situation. Elliot Tepper, uh, Professor Emeritus at Carleton. Uh, as always, Elliot, thank you so much. Uh, ever-changing information coming out of there. It's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks for this today. Oh, good to talk to you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.